got married, you were never going to tell me. I was going to tell you, Annie. I was going to tell you later. Later? How much later could you have told me? Now, there's no need in going on like this. You were going to wait until... Annie... And then throw me aside like a squeezed lemon. Squeezed lemon. Don't dramatize this. I've given you the best years of my life, and you were willing to go on and on. I've always had a suspicion about you. So did my mother. Your forehead slants back too much. Will you please let Don't me say... Don't touch me. But, Annie, I... Get out of here. Go on. Go on. You're not staying here. We can't leave the bedroom until after we've made up. You're not in the bedroom. Get out. Annie, listen to me. May I... I know you for what you are. I'm lucky I found you out. You're going out of here. Those are my clothes. Never come back. I never want to see you again as long as I live. Yeah, what are you doing? You're listening to the official podcast of the Old Hollywood Times, a news site dedicated to reporting on all things Hollywood, the Hollywood of 75 years ago, that is. I'm Wesley Umbridge. Every day, we're reporting on the news that was breaking and the films that were being released, with an added three-quarters of a century of hindsight. You just heard a clip of Carol Lombard with Robert Montgomery in Mr. and Mrs. Smith, directed by Alfred Hitchcock. It's not an especially interesting film, but it has the distinction of being the last film starring Lombard that was released before her death. 75 years ago yesterday was January 16th, 1942, where, on her way back to L.A. after selling war bonds in Indiana, Lombard died alongside 21 other passengers in a plane crash. We're not here to talk about the details of her death, however. You can find a full recounting of that on our site. Today, I'll talk with Dr. Emily Carman, professor of film studies at Dodge College at Chapman University, about Lombard's career and the ways in which it went up against the standard studio contracts that most stars had. We're going to hear a clip from Lombard's screwball classic, My Man Godfrey, and then we'll be back with my conversation with Dr. Carman. Oh, you, you you can't come in here. Why not? It's our house, isn't it? After all, one room is just like any other room. Oh, besides, I want to talk. I'm terribly sorry, but we, we can't talk here. Well, don't you think it's rather indecent of you to order me out after you kiss me? After I kiss you, did you say? Isn't it funny? This morning you were sitting on my bed, now I'm sitting on yours. Uh, we'll overlook that startling coincidence. Uh, uh, will you settle here? The please? bed's very comfortable. If it isn't, I'll get you another. Well, we'll have our talk here. Now that I'm your sponsor, if you want a new bed, you can have it. Uh, the bed's very comfortable, thank you. Much more so than I am at the moment. Oh, any time you're uncomfortable, you just let me know. Well, thank you. Uh, hasn't anyone ever told you about certain proprieties? You use such lovely big words. I like big words. What does it mean? And we're back with Emily Carmen. So, first, can you tell us a little bit about your book and how you came to the idea for it? Yes, my book actually began as my dissertation when I was a doctoral student at UCLA and I was in Professor Vivian Sobchak's historiography class and I was trying to find a topic and I was quite frantic because the quarter system is only 10 weeks and it moves so fast. So I think it was week five and I didn't have a topic for my paper for her class, which we were supposed to be doing primary materials research. Um, on some aspect of film or television or media history. And I was talking with her in office hours and just pontificating and commenting on the undergraduate American cinema survey class that I was a TA for. And we had just talked about James Stewart and his landmark so-called deal with um, the agent Lou Wasserman for the film Winchester 73 in 1951, how it was the first star to freelance and earn this really big significant chunk of profits from the studios and I was grousing to Vivian well I don't know why we always talk about James Stewart what about Carol Lombard I know she was freelancing and doing percentage earnings of her salaries in the 30s and she said that my dear is an excellent topic that should be your topic for 
this class paper. And I thought, okay, so that's where it all started, and that, that's more than a decade ago now. Um, so the, the project's been with me for quite a while. So, so let's talk a little bit about Lombard. Um, so I'm just going to lead up to where your book begins. Mm-hmm. Uh, she started acting when she was just 12 in 1921 uh, yes. and worked at Fox uh, for like a little bit until she was in this horrible car accident a few years yeah. later. Yes. Um, and then through some like especially painful, supposedly, uh, cosmetic mm-hmm. surgery, she was left with only like some very small scars on her face that she was able to hide pretty easily with makeup and her hair and the right kind of lighting. Um, Next, she was in a number of uh, slapstick shorts for Max Sennett in the late 20s, which yeah, led to her... Bathing beauties. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then she finally signed with Paramount in 1930. Um, and up until this point, she had been spelling her name uh, C-A-R-O-L. But the materials for Fast and Loose, which was her first film at the studio, uh, supposedly someone messed up or there was a typo uh, and added an E to the end of her name. Uh, but... <laughs> I, I suppose she either liked it or the film was successful enough that she just decided to change it to that. Um, and, you know, Carol, without the E, wasn't even her name to start with. It was Jane Peters. Um, so many different variations on her name mm-hmm. and face. Many, many changed versions of herself. Um, so she appeared with, uh, in films and married William Powell at Paramount, though then they divorced two years later. Uh, and she became sick of a lot of the parts that Paramount was giving her. So she made a change with uh, mm-hmm. some of these loanouts, if you want to talk about those. Yes, um, and I'm glad you brought up William Powell because he was quite instrumental mm-hmm. in her career and, and this trajectory that she went on in, in becoming the Carol Lombard that we all know and love now if you're fans of, of scribble comedy or, or classic Hollywood cinema. So mm-hmm. Powell had the best agent in the business in the 30s, uh, the brother of David O. Selznick, Myron Selznick, and he introduced his wife um, and to Selznick, and she became his client as well. And Selznick, uh, the legend has it, he prided himself on excoriating the studio bosses um, for on behalf of his clients to get them to get the most money for his clients from the studio executives. The legend is is that it was as retribution to his father, Louis J. Selznick, being shut out of the new the new Hollywood in California. I don't know if that's true. Um, his signature phrase was it it isn't enough with with negotiations. So he renegotiated uh, her contract with Paramount at the time, um, and this didn't. Indirectly, she didn't have approval on loan outs at that point, but because um, Paramount didn't quite know, uh, I'm not quite sure exactly how the loan out was arranged, but the, the Howard Hawks was directing 20th Century over at Columbia, mm-hmm. um, and he knew Lombard personally, um, her, her vibrant social persona, and you know, the the legend that she, um, the profane angel, that she swore like a sailor, um, was really animated and physical, and just a, a ball of energy. Um, and so I think that's how she got um, interested in, in this part, and he wanted to get her for this part, and so did John Barrymore, who was the big star of this film. And he was impressed with her, um, I think she came in and read for the part. Um, I don't quite have the precise uh, rationale, the precise reason for how she got loaned out to um, Columbia, other than that Paramount could do it because she didn't have control over loan outs. But through um, the behind the scenes negotiations in a way, meeting Hawks and through Selznick's connections, um, 
and being her being his client and I think Paramount honestly they didn't know what to do with her um, up to that point she'd been the orchid lady which was really just this glamorous clothes horse who appeared in a bunch of visually arresting films I might say um, I think my favorite is is probably a tie between White Woman, this weird rubber plantation movie with uh, Charles Lawton, who's sort of this deranged plantation owner who wants to sleep with Carol Lombard and she does not want to sleep with him. And then uh, Supernatural, which is sort of this weird apparitional um, horror film from Paramount and, and she's the lead um, in that. So, But they're not A pictures mm -hmm. and they're sort of Paramount's versions of B movies and they did not at all she was on any comedies. She was in any of the Lubitsch films um, or any of the comedies that were being filmed at the studio at that point. So I think since they didn't quite know what to do with her and she was a dutiful worker who basically did what was asked of her, I think she made about six movies a year in those those times at Paramount. Um, when they requested to for her for a loan after 20th Century, the studio abided. Um, and this is something that will happen again with My Man Godfrey in two years. Um, and both these loan outs were pivotal for, for her screen persona and becoming um, the screwball comedian that we know now. Um, but there's a story that when they started filming 20th Century, that as soon as Hawks would, would yell, you know, okay, roll film, that she would get really rigid and freeze up and her acting was just very cold and very much was not syncing with the character or working with the dynamic of John Barrymore. And I think Hawks, for, if I remember my, my recollection, is that he pulled her aside and was like, you know, you, you, if you can't get this together, I'm going to have to hire another actress. So, you know, be how you are off screen. And, she, and he's like, what would you do? What would Carol Lombard do? Um, if this, if, if what, what Oscar Jaffe just did to Lily Garland, what would Carol Lombard do? Like, oh, I would fucking, you know, do this and this, and I'd fight him, and a lot of swear words. And he's like, okay, minus the swear words, this is what you need to be doing when I yell, uh, roll film. And so her awakening and really synthesizing that on-screen and off-screen persona that is the Carol Lombard we recognize um, happened through Hawks's directing of her and um, you know, she very much enjoyed the opportunity to work with John Barrymore, who at this point, his alcoholism is not to the point that he's on his downward spiral to the end of his career yeah. and life. But he, he, so he's still John Barrymore, the renowned actor. Um, and, and he also, I think, quite, was quite influential in Lombard's uh, craft and her, act, her emerging acting talent at that point. So yeah, so, so, uh, so she has these two low notes and even, um, I feel like having an agent even at this time was kind of a different step that, that already was kind of breaking from the norm a little bit. Um, but so she does these two low notes that make her like a, a much bigger star already. Um, and then she goes, uh, she ends her contract at a certain point after, right? And she becomes a freelancer. Yes, yeah, she, um, so basically 20th century didn't, didn't do as well as Columbia had hoped. They were hoping for another, it happened one night. Um, the film, yeah was not a box office success, nothing like the phenomenon of it happened one night. But it definitely, um, mm -hmm, sure. it was it very much bolstered Lombard's um, rank in Hollywood, that, that she could act and that she was a good comedian. So you start to see mm -hmm. after um, she comes back to Paramount, they're finally giving her more attention and developing some comedies mm -hmm. around her. The the ones from 35 that are quite quite fun to watch are The Princess Comes Across, where she's 
basically a um, Wanda Nash of Brooklyn who's impersonating a, a European princess. Say, they say that she was spoofing Garbo, and it's pretty funny to watch. Um, and that introduces her with her soon-to-be frequent co-star, Fred McMurray. Um, and I don't then know, made for each other. I, that movie, Love Before Breakfast and Hands Across the Table. And this also coincides with Ernst yeah. Lubitsch becoming head of production at Paramount. And he, and I don't feel hmm. a lot of, this is well known, about her um, trajectory at Paramount finally getting these star <laughs> vehicles where she, and, and comedies developed for her, um, not for Miriam Hopkins or Claudette Colbert who tossed them aside and then it goes to Carol Lombard. No, sure. these were Lombard yeah. pictures. That goes to Lubitsch. And I think this is a connection that might be elusive to some classic mm-hmm. Hollywood fans or film historians because they don't actually make a picture mm-hmm. together until her last film, To Be or Not To Be. Um, but he understood and saw, like, here's a here's a talent we haven't been cultivating at the studio. Um, mm-hmm. Unfortunately, he's only head of the studio for about nine months, so I think most of these projects he greenlit for her, he was gone by the time oh, they yeah. were done. But that led to, again, a bolstering of her box office power and just her, her, um, her market value around town. So when the contract... Um, was up, yeah. oh, backing up a second, I know we're going to talk about My Man Godfrey momentarily, but really these, they're these mm-hmm. more, they're these comedies at Paramount that do well at the box office for the most part, and then there's this other loan out that is to Universal mm-hmm. to make My Man Godfrey, and that's a huge success critically yeah. and commercially, and it, it resulted in her, her one Best Actress nomination for an Oscar. So this coincides with her contract being up at Paramount, mm-hmm. um, and that's... I think where Myron Selznick and Lombard thought, okay, why do we want to sign away seven plus years again with Paramount given their track record? They haven't done a good job at managing um, your talent and showcasing it. Why don't we freelance? And um, that's mm-hmm. that's where she she moves on away from. She does have a deal at Paramount um, in these first freelance agreements, but she'll she'll never be a long term contract star again um she she signs with paramount with warners and selznick international um all between 37 and 38 and so this is something that i mean especially in your book it's a lot more women end up making this decision than the men i feel like i see a lot of male stars (laughs) who are kind of comfortable with their studio they're cool with the decisions being made but the women get frustrated with the roles they're put in and the choices being made so so i mean can you talk about that a little bit yeah i've i've pontificate a lot about this and it's a question that has come up many times in the research and writing and talking um, and the reception of this book. Uh, So my theory has to do with just the way the star system worked in the 30s and for the majority of the classic Hollywood era which is in opposition to the marketing presumptions of Hollywood now particularly in terms of who is the most important patron for their movies. Mm -hmm. In the 30s especially and um, the 20s and 40s before and after, women were presumed to be the most important audience for, for Hollywood filmmakers. And even if that wasn't true, anecdotal evidence points to that it was probably more 50-50, the gender breakdown, but Hollywood presumed that it was the mothers, the wives, the sisters, the girlfriends, the daughters who were pushing the movie to go see if it was a family or date um, affair. So they wanted those women to be happy. That's why every action film in the 30s for the most part still has a love interest role even if it's mm-hmm. if it's a 
Warner Brothers. You know, there's there's still often a, um, a love interest, even if if that female role part isn't as big as Jim, Jimmy Cagney's or per se. Mm -hmm. So the female star system was key to this marketing presumption of Hollywood in the 30s, and um, I believe that's why more female actresses were able to negotiate this freelance path. Carol Lombard being one of the women who left a, f a f long-term contract at its end to become a freelancer, um, and there were others like her, like Janet Gaynor, but there were even um, other colleagues of her time that never signed a long-term contract, like Barbara Stanwyck or Irene Dunn mm -hmm. and um, Constance Bennett. Um, they were freelancing and working in an independent mode by the early to mid-30s. So there was a path, and it was more women. I think that, and these aren't these weren't the Shirley Temples or the mm -hmm. Jean Harlows, the superstar female stars of the 30s. I liked, I, I think often about contemporary equivalents, especially with my, my millennial students who don't right. know who these people were. Um, you're unique in that way, Wesley. <laughs> but I, I think about what's a comparative actress, and I think a Stanwyck or a Lombard is similar to maybe how, you know, a Julianne Moore is today. You know, an actress that is definitely has some market value. People who like movies would know who she is and might want to go see a movie because she's in it. But she's not Robert Downey Jr. She's not, um, uh, she's not Jennifer Lawrence. You know, she's, she's in a more niche. Um, her stardom is more niche. And these actresses were in the same way. So they weren't big enough to the point that studios would see dollar signs, that they want to keep them exclusively for themselves. Um, but they were, uh, they were respected actresses, critically and commercially, and they had enough of a following that they could negotiate this space to be at multiple studios. Um, and consistently be employed because they were good actresses and um, pleasant to work with. That was key to stay a freelancer. And it's interesting, the, um, the only two notable um, male stars, I mean, A-list stars, they were character actors like Ever, Edward Everett Horton and um, Edward Arnold who were freelancers, but um, Roderick Coleman and later Cary Grant, who doesn't even really become a free, um, a big star until the late 30s, those are the only equivalent male stars. Oh, and, and Frederick March. Um, but what's interesting about March is that he's more interested in being a freelancer for like the perks of stardom. Like he wants to only work certain hours, his dressing room has to be just so. Um, it's more... Um, about his terms of work. It's not necessarily about the creative agency or input into the project, whereas all these women, especially Carol Lombard, but uh, of course the other freelance women I mentioned, who the freelance path was a way to bolster their creative agency in the Hollywood studio system. And yes, perks were part of that, but story approval, um, working with certain directors or cinematographers or writers, approval of co-star, um, all these things were quite standard in these the array of female actress contracts I look at in the book, um, whereas they weren't there for March. Coleman um, was interested in creative terms, uh, and Cary Grant to a certain extent. Um, although his contracts were more uh, later in the '40s, you know, for the financial angle, the money. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, okay, so yeah, let, let's talk about the money, um, because she's often referenced, like, since so few people seem to know about her today, mm -hmm. often the way people kind of introduce her is, she was at one point the highest paid actress in Hollywood, and she had this, this $150, or no, $150,000 uh, fee, and often 
these big percentages of these movies that technically made her the highest paid actress because it wasn't a weekly fee it was this one big fee yes. as a freelancer yes. um so, so can you talk a little, a little bit about that fee and both and uh, as well like all these kind of special provisions that she had in her contracts these costume designer cinematographer the billing font size shooting schedule this kind of stuff yeah lombard um yeah it's interesting you mentioned that uh if she gets any attention these days it's usually she was clark gable's wife or she was a yeah. screwball comedian <laughs> or yeah she at one point was the highest paid woman um or not even woman just the highest paid hollywood um, star in, the, in mm-hmm. 1937 um and it was these freelance contracts that were negotiated by myron selznick that made her the most highly compensated hollywood star of 37 um mm-hmm. and and the money was important um clearly for her but it wasn't um that was just one small piece of her contractual um nomenclature that was important to her as an artist and as a freelancer. So you, you mentioned quite a number of them. Um, the Lombard contract was standard um, by 37 to have um, you know, billing clauses that her na- she had to have first billing and her, her, the size of her font had to be in the same size of her as her co-stars. And that's just a way to literally have the marquee value. Um, and she'd worked so hard to get to be a respect, like a, a leading lady who could carry a picture. So I think that's why that might have been even more important to her. Although you see that in almost every um, contract with a big star who has an agent and they know that they want to make sure their marquee value is known. But I think what's more interesting in her contracts um, are, as you mentioned, the um, cinematographer and designer of choice um, and makeup artist and hairstylist. So it's not just like, okay, women want to look nice on screen, but that really was key to creating her look, her brand as Carol Lombard, which as a freelancer, she's bereft of studio support to do that for her. So if she's going to be working at four different studios all in the same year, Carol Lombard needs to be synonymous in all those films um, with the Carol Lombard brand. So that means she wants to have Teddy Tesloff uh, being her her cinematographer. She wants Travis Banton designing her gowns um, because that's going to give her that uniform look that will enrich her brand. The cinematographer goes back to what you mentioned, that car accident that left her with a few subtle scars on her face because she trusted him um, based on their time together at Paramount and she liked the results that he could photograph her in a way that would mitigate those scars being seen. Um, any peop- Anyone listening to this, you, know, you can Google Carol Lombard and if you find some big pictures of her, you, if you zoom in, you can kind of see <laughs> with digital technology where they were. But in films, it's quite hard to see um, sometimes in some big close-ups, but it's only for a second. Um, so Tedslav became key just because of the way she wanted to be filmed so as to not see that scar. But it went beyond just just um, the, the visual um, assets and the people she wanted to help her image in that way. She had co-star and director approval, um, story approval to, to select what films she'd appear in. Um, that these deals, like Selznick couldn't farm her out. Selznick was pretty notorious for this. If he had someone under contract, if he couldn't figure out what to do with them, this gets really bad in the 40s where he's basically just loaning out his 
his contract stars and not using them in his own movies. Um, but he couldn't farm out her deal to another studio. And that was true with the deals that Warner's um, and Paramount later at RKO. But what's really interesting about these contracts is her, um, her agency to be involved with her publicity and to collaborate on publicity campaigns and to um, be, uh, get her fan mail and um, read it and be able to use that to do press, press releases and publicity campaigns. Um, and the way the right to how her, her um, the right to her likeness in advertising and marketing, um, she very much understood. Getting back to we talked about how the makeup artist and the the cinematographer and the the costume designer. Okay, yes, that's the visual look of Carol Lombard, Carol Lombard the brand. But she also understood the brand went beyond that. It, it was very key um, to how that brand was marketed in fan magazines, in press releases, and any publicity related to her films. Um, she was called the ultimate publicity hound in Hollywood, and she um, liked being photographed, liked being in the, in the news, um, and was not hostile at all to publicists or the press because she understood this was key to, be, to maintaining her celebrity, um, especially as a freelancer. So the, of all the contracts I looked at for the book, she was the most attuned to this aspect of being a, free, a freelancer and this right to publicity and creating publicity campaigns with Russell Burwell, who was Selznick's publicity director, but then he goes freelance and becomes one of the first independent publicists in the 40s, and Carol Lombard is one of his first clients. Um, so, so we've talked a lot about like just how savvy she was. She was so attuned to her brand and all these things that she needed to have perfectly in place to like really maintain this persona and keep her a star. Um, and so you talk a little bit about this company that then she tried to, she tried to go even further um, and mm -hmm. forming this company with Myron Selznick and William Powell and Lubitsch um, that ended up not materializing, but at least at the start seemed like it was going to be this really kind of interesting idea of essentially paying actors with a percentage rather than paying them up front, correct? Yes, yes. So they weren't going to get any upfront salary. It would all be through the, the profits that they would the film would gross after the production had ended. Um, so, and that's quite ahead of its time because that's how many big movie stars today make their money. And you're not going to make, you're not going to get signed for $20 million. You're going to make that through the percentage of profits that you, that you make in, in, uh, as a Marvel, um, as in the Marvel movies or in any franchise. Usually it's franchises that are going to get you those profits in today's Hollywood. But yeah, um, Ern again, we come back to Ernst Lubitsch, who I think is this, this like structured absence in the, in the legacy and career of Carol Lombard. But um, William Powell, Lombard's ex-husband, but who by, um, was, they remained very good friends, and he was a good friend to the end of her life, um, so William Powell, um, Myron Selznick, their, their agent in common, and Ernst Lubitsch decide that they're going to go in, they're going to create their own production company, and they're going to call it the Lubitsch Company. Um, Lubitsch, Lubitsch was like Spielberg um, uh, in, in today's Hollywood. You know, that name was synonymous with like a really, you know, if you knew who Lubitsch was, Lubitsch equals directing. So I think, and he was respected as a good filmmaker. So I, I think that was a, keen strategy on their part to call it the 
um, Lubitsch company, and clearly they didn't want to call it the Selznick company because there already was <laughs> Selznick International Pictures from Myron's brother. But they were going to go into business for themselves, and Lombard was really excited about it. You know, we're gonna, it's gonna be a partnership, and we're all gonna make this film, and then our fates and our salaries will lie with the film. And if if it if it soars, we 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 score. If it if it sinks, you know, then we learn our lesson and we need to do something better the next time. And I think, I think she was quoted as saying to a fan magazine journalist, you know, we'll get, we'll get ours for what we do now and what, we, what, we're, what we're thinking now, not in seven years projected from now if you were signing a long-term contract. Um, unfortunately, this deal never came to fruition. There's a couple competing stories as to why. Um, there's some that say um, Myron Selznick was so irrescribable that they couldn't get any um, distribution deals from the studios that had theater chains. Um, I don't know if that's necessarily true. Um, or that they just, financing. Financing is what I think is more realistic um, because William Powell was still a long-term contract player at MGM. Um, Lombard's films by 38 had, had cooled a little bit on the box office, so her um, maybe... Her cash flow was not as, as lucrative. Um, and I'm not really sure with Ernst Lubitsch what was going on, but um, the deal just kind of fell up, just never came to be. Um, but I think um, if she hadn't died in 1942, um, many anecdotes on the set of To Be or Not To Be point to the fact that she was almost an unofficial producer, co-producer with Lubitsch, and that that she might have moved more into producing. I certainly think as she kind of aged out of leading lady status in Hollywood, she might have emulated the path set by Ida Lupino and, and already set by Mary Pickford and gotten more into producing. And she may have gotten back to that Lubitsch company idea with Lubitsch, I'm not sure. Um, but it was pretty phenomenal and it had a bunch of press in the trades um, around 1937. Um, but the deal never came to fruition. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely tempting to speculate about like where her career might have gone had she not died, because yeah. I think for a lot of people, myself included, to be or not to be is kind of like her peak performance too. Like the yes. most, it's definitely the movie that I think most people know her for. At least on IMDb, it's like her number one. Like people know her <laughs> from this movie, yeah. um, and it's she's just so good in it. And with all these kinds of business aspects, she was already signed on to make another movie. Uh, later on that Joan Crawford ended up replacing her in and she was even I think considering doing a sort of my man Godfrey sequel of sorts that was going to like my woman Godfrey something like that so she had a lot of plans um, and it seemed like she was kind of coming back to these screwball movies that made her a big success in the first place after a lot of these dramatic roles didn't really do yes. that well for her but then she died sadly so yes. we'll never really know what would have happened um, but okay so let's talk about her acting, uh, specifically My Man Godfrey, a favorite of both of ours. Um, mm -hmm. You picked this movie as kind of the one that we should talk about. So why do you think she stands out here more than in her other films, performance-wise? We, we've talked about like why this movie was so important career-wise, but what about her in this movie really stuck out to you? Well, yeah, I, I've taught this film a few times in the more recent years, and I'm always interested in seeing, you know, I, I don't think I have... I don't I have no critical distance with, with people like Carol Lombard because right. I've been into their their films and been reading about them since I was about 12 years old so I, I can't take myself out of 
my, my reverie for these films. But when mm -hmm. I teach them, I often watch my students and I want to see how, how they react. And even sometimes I'm, I'm confounded sometimes by, I'm worried. I'm like, oh, <laughs> this is not going well. Yeah. And, and how they respond usually confounds me. And her character, Irene Bullock, um, it reaches out and connects still with millennial audiences in a way that something like Irene Dunn and the Awful Truth doesn't. Hmm. Um, and I, I think um, what I'm drawn to in this film is, first of all, she still looks fabulous, <laughs> <laughs> even though she's supposed to be um, the very screwball uh, Irene Bullock, who is very, mm -hmm. very much a ditzy dame. Um, and that they do a little spin on her, it's her hairstyle, which is a little kooky for um, the glamorous Carol Lombard that we know. So, but mm -hmm. she still has fabulous clothes, and she's still lit in a way that she literally glimmers. I mean, you yeah. can't get a more um, high deco entry credit sequence from classic Hollywood in the 30s than Myron Godfrey. Like, I love mm -hmm. that that font and it's glimmering over water yeah that whole title um, sequence is yeah it's super cool um and she i mean i feel like the wardrobe they put her in echoes that kind of mm -hmm. glimmering um entrance way with the credits um but you're uh we want to contextualize my man gabri within within the depression Dep mm -hmm. if you're a depression era audience who may have fallen on more difficult economic times or was impacted somehow by the depression um movies poking fun at the obscenely rich were very popular and so it'd be very easy to not like irene bullock just like her snobby mm -hmm. sister who is more embodying the stereotype associated with extremely wealthy um americans who've never had to work or never are, are not even feeling the impact of the depression but you see with with irene bullock like it, yes she's been spoiled she's been sheltered but mm -hmm she has a kind heart yeah. and she's a nice person which is what strikes William Powell in front of the first sequence and he sees how you know she's constantly slighted by her big sister um, mm -hmm. and she has this feisty competitive edge that comes out in key moments um, but you I think she really endears herself um, to the depression audience then through the millennial audience now where mm -hmm. um, it'd be very easy to not like anyone in the Bullock family yeah. but she endears herself and when her, it's actually a more muted, not muted, but she's, she's, it's, it's, it's William Powell's movie. Yeah. But when she's there, she steals every scene. Totally. And, um, and she never, it's never to the point where it's too much. You know, I, I just, I just recently taught bringing a baby and I have to mm -hmm. agree with some of the contemporary reviewers, you know, Hepburn can, can get on your nerves after a while, mm -hmm. but never with, um, Irene, with Irene Bullock and, um, my man Godfrey. Uh, when she has a scene, or when she makes a scene, might be the better, um, <laughs> the better way to put it. Um, it's it's very calculated, and it works to endear her. Um, mm. But what I think is really interesting, from my standpoint, in historicizing uh, this film within the arc of her career, is um, this this is the next screwball comedy that's high profile that follows twentieth um, century. There were those mm -hmm. those Paramount comedies in between, but like. Um, 20th Century, which was directed by Howard Hawks. This film's directed by Gregory LaCava. So mm -hmm. more what we might call auteurs working within the Hollywood studio system at the time. So right. they had more, um, more of a brand, more, um, just more of, a, of an artistic vision in that film. And so I think, but contra 20th Century, where she had to basically be um, 
be coached by Howard Hawks, like be yourself, like be, mm -hmm. Lily Garland is you, but not the way you're acting. She already had that down. Right. So she is ready to take a good role and really utilize it to debut the Carol Lombard brand. And what's interesting is, I, I was just talking about bringing a baby. I was looking at some reviews um, for to show my students. I always like to do that to contextualize the reception of a film and its time. Mm -hmm. um, and they, and I think it's in both the New York and LA Times, they're mentioning, like they're referencing that Hepburn's gone Carol Lombard. Huh. And it's so interesting that because Catherine Hepburn was this, you know, revered acting talent mm -hmm. um and this was one of her first screwball movies that at the time some critics were appalled like what is what is the dramatic right. actress Catherine hepburn doing being a screwball comedian mm -hmm. but i thought that was so interesting that they were talking about actresses like irene dunn and Catherine hepburn going lombard hmm. um so like that approach the kind of dizzy um unknowing but kind-hearted uh heiress or dame um that that was pioneered by Carol Lombard and in the industry and critical parlance at the time they mentioned that um, so but I've just been inspired by watching my students just really uh, become smitten with Irene Bullock um, mm -hmm. whereas you know, the, you're not supposed to like the sister <laughs> but it would be very easy just to dismiss this this whole Bullock clan because they're they're pretty absurd but mm -hmm. Lombard humanizes um, the family and um, and in turn humanizes the the Bullocks. Like, okay, they might be filthy rich, but um, they're just like you and me. They mm -hmm. they have problems with their with their parents, with their sisters. They fall in love, mm -hmm. um, and I love how it ends. I mean, it's sort of a funny thing. Like, basically, Godfrey has no agency. Like, she's yeah. like, okay, we're getting married, you know, and she brings in the guy, and she's got all the stuff, and he's just sort of sitting there, like, uh, okay. <laughs> You know, you see in a lot of other Hollywood movies at the time, um, where it's the it's the male character that's that's taking more of the whisking away right. the maybe ambivalent or not so sure fem uh, female protagonist. I think even with it happened one night. You know, mm -hmm. Cla Colbert's the indecisive bride, yeah. and it's it is um, her dad and Clark Gable who push her to not stay with King Wesley and and be with him. But in My Man Godfrey, that's Irene Bullock all the way engineering yeah. to be with Godfrey, to finding a way to to um, to get him to stay close to her and basically mm -hmm. hijacking him into a marriage with her at the end of the movie. Um, and I guess closing thought there, I would say um, the whole, it's sort of a film based on reciprocity. Mm -hmm. And if you want to put this in the, the FDR New Deal depression milieu, um, I think that that's something that was quite popular at the time. You know, the government's going to do something for you, and in turn, you can do something for your fellow person. Um, so the whole point is, you know, oh, you've done a good deed for me, Godfrey. In the first scene, mm -hmm. I want to do something good for you in turn. Right. And that's a very simple principle. It's the golden rule, do unto others mm -hmm. as they would to you. But that's really the driving arc of the film. And I think that that's, that's um, it just highlights that human element that um, was popular at the time with, with stars. You know, they wanted them mm -hmm. to be, they're heavenly, but they're still just like you and me. Um, and that's, you know, for lack of a better adjective, it's just a nice thing mm -hmm. <laughs> that, you know, she wants to do a good deed for, for this person that helped her beat her sister <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> for the first right. time in her life. Um, I want to go back to something you said earlier about showing this to your students and them mm -hmm. really connecting with the character. It's interesting because I had a friend watch this recently 
uh, and she hated uh, at least the character of Irene. She couldn't stand her. Um, oh, and I was interested, and I was like, well, what about the actress? And she was like, yeah, I mean, I guess I like the actress. And I wonder, because this is, and Lamar definitely did this a lot, it's a very, like, big performance. It's a very loud performance. Like, yes. she's screaming and crying, and 20th Century is this, like, even more so. I feel like every, oh, yeah. every screwball comedy, it gets a little bit less so until I feel like To Be or Not To Be might be the perfect amount of that. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I can definitely understand certain people kind of reacting to that and being like, this is a lot to handle. I definitely think it works. Um, but it, it definitely, your mileage can vary there. Um, how do you feel about her as a dramatic actress? Because a lot of those movies are a lot rougher, but I don't know how much of it is necessarily on her versus just the movies aren't so good. Yeah, I think that's well said. Um, and getting back to your friend I, I can understand because the shower sequence of my man godfrey yeah. that's a bit much <laughs> <laughs> but um it uh it it is where it is um mm-hmm. sure. yeah her dramatic movies i think are, are misunderstood um well they're the paramount ones in which she wasn't being really well utilized so those mm-hmm. weren't definitely weren't the best roles i mentioned earlier they really were if mary Hopkins or um, Claudette Colbert didn't want them they might end up at, at Lombard's um, being assigned to her so she really was a second rate leading lady but in the late 30s um, I've, I've watched a couple of these recently um, especially I recently watched In Name Only and um, I Made for Each Other Made for Each Other actually she got pretty good reviews for her performance in that film yeah. I don't know Made um, for Each Other I that movie well not it's a fan. quite it's it's quite sanguine for contemporary taste. I mean, this yeah. is the this is the thing that um, I'm teaching a class right now in 1939. So I'm doing when we're finished here, hmm. and I haven't quite brought it up yet, but I I might, especially when we get to Mr. Smith goes to Washington. <laughs> you know, the 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 sentimentality, the sentiment of classic Hollywood. There there is, you know, there there is no sarcasm. You know, there sure. yeah. it's it's meant to be taken at face value. They're sincere, but that can come off as corny to contemporary Mm -hmm. audiences so i think made for each other comes off a little corny um Mm -hmm. but in the time she got good reviews for that film but it's 1939 when there were many 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 good films so that film wasn't gonna yeah it wasn't gonna get traction critically Mm -hmm. really it um, it was dwarfed by all these other films (laughs) mainly the other sells like international release one film called gone with the wind um so um and then I agree with you. Um, things like they knew what they wanted and uh, Vigil in the Night, um, the f- there was just something lacking in the scripts. Yeah. But she herself, I think, was a quite adept dramatic actress and is, and is good in these. Mm-hmm. Um, compared to what we are just talking about in her screwball comedies, she's much more um, restrained, I might <laughs> say. Um, the performances are quite even. Yeah. Um, and and balanced, whereas I feel like in the screwball comedies throughout the 30s, is, you're right though they they kind of crescendo the op, like down, not up. Mm-hmm. Um, she becomes more subdued in a way. Um, but in name only, I recently showed up as part of a program at UCLA in their Billy Wilder Theater that was showcasing the films um, from my book, and I chose that film partially because it, it it did decent box office for RKO. Mm-hmm. But also, that film is so interesting if you read it through the lens of Lombard's off-screen life because it's the movie based on um, a kind of a harpy wife who has a lot of money and more social status and um, won't let Cary Grant divorce her 
because she doesn't lose her status, and yet you know she's the more noble and um, nicer of the women and is genuinely in love with him and he with her. Hmm. Does that sound familiar? I mean, it's basically this shadow film right. about the real life of Carol Lombard and this huh. illicit love affair that she was having with Clark Gable for a few years um, and his obstinate socialite wife who wouldn't divorce him. Mm -hmm. um, and when finally he, uh, he did through the um, help of the studio and Louis B. Mayer, and he had to pay his divorce settlement out of his salary from MGM. <laughs> it cost a lot of money. Her divorce settlement was $237,000 in 1939 value. That's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. Um, it's a lot of yeah, money now. I'd love yeah, that. <laughs> exactly. Um, but I just became fascinated with that film that audiences at the time would, if you were reading the fan magazines, like you would totally know this is about right. Carol Lombard's. I mean, you could read this as, as, as a reference to her saga with Clark Gable. Hmm. Um, so I think that that film, anyone, I don't know if it's accessible, but it's worth checking out um, to see how audience at the time may have contextualized that film alongside uh, her star persona um, in becoming Mrs. Clark Gable. Hmm. Because in the film, like in real life, you know, she, does get, she does get the man the right way, you know, she, she gets to marry him. Um, so I think that's an interesting film and I think she's good in it. Although I, I watched it, um, with some friends who aren't as into these movies and they mm -hmm. thought it was really bad, <laughs> but, um, I think that's just cause it's high melodrama and, and mm -hmm. melodrama does it, melodrama is, is a different genre to, to watch from the classic Hollywood years because melodrama now is, is it does it's often not played to be taken so seriously yeah. or if it is it's more drama the mellow mm -hmm. has somewhere been elusive yeah. so um these films from classic hollywood which starred so many of the most important female stars are played for high melodrama um mm -hmm. and it can seem too much it can seem too excessive yeah. you know this is not douglas sirks this is not played to be ironic mm -hmm. <laughs> um so it's unfortunate, I think, that of those four dramatic roles she did to try to expand her um, her range, it's only in name only that does that does decently. You know, the next three, Vigil in the Night, they knew what they wanted and made for each other didn't um, perform that well at all at the box office. Well, made for each other, I believe, cost too much to make, so it wasn't necessarily that. It right. didn't do box office, but certainly Vigil of the Night that was that was not good, mm -hmm. and they knew what they wanted fell flat too. Um, mm. But I might add that it was savvy of her to go the dramatic path because it wasn't just um, Lombard screwball films. The whole screwball genre was 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 overdone by 1939. Audiences mm -hmm. supposedly were tiring of them. Critics certainly were. I mentioned Bringing a Baby with Catherine Hepburn. Yeah. I think part of why that film got mixed critical reception was critics were just tired of these gimmick screwballs that were emulating mm -hmm. films like My Man Godfrey and It Happened One Night, not new creative approaches to the genre. So it was smart of her to change gears and think about, okay, I'm going to do some drama now because um, screwballs falling flat at the box office. And that's, if I keep doing this, this could damage my ability to stay a freelancer. Hmm. So... Okay. I think she may have, I wonder if she may have done more dramatic roles if she hadn't died so untimely. 
-hmm. It would have been nice to see if she got something. Or I don't know, what if she'd been in film noir? I could see her. Man, yeah. yeah. There's so many, so many possibilities. (laughs) I mean, she could be alive, like, still, theoretically. She could. She could be like Livy de Havilland and be a centurion. (laughs) That would be insane. Yeah. In some alternate universe. Oh, well. Yes. Okay, so so uh, to wrap up, uh, the book is Independent Stardom. Where where can people find it? You can find it in a number of places um, on, on Amazon, and you can find it from the University of Texas Press uh, website, um, my publisher, and I believe it's also Barnes & Noble or any mm-hmm. of the usual places you go to buy books. It's cool. there. It's also available, I think, as a Kindle version. No audiobook yet, sadly. <laughs> next step, next step. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much for talking to me. This was this was great. Oh, it was my pleasure, Wesley. Thank you for inviting me to be on your on your podcast. Thanks again to Dr. Carmen for coming on. Make sure to check out her book with full details of not just Lombard's contract, but some of the other stars that we talked about. My Man Godfrey is in the public domain so you can download it for free right now on archive.org. You'll find a link in the show notes. It's also available in much better quality on DVD. You can find our story about Lombard's death, along with many more articles about the Hollywood of 75 years ago, on our website, oldhollywoodtimes.com. We're also on Twitter and Facebook at OHTimes, and on Instagram at oldhollywoodtimes. We'll be back with another episode next month. Stay tuned. <laughs>